the gospel lesson. It comes to us this morning from the good news according to St. Matthew, the 25th chapter. This is Jesus speaking, telling what the kingdom is like. Starting in verse 14. The kingdom of heaven will be like a man going on a journey who called his servants and entrusted to them his property. To one he gave five talents, to another two, and to another one, to each according to his ability. Then he went away. He who had received the five talents went at once and traded with them, and he made five talents more. So also he he who had the two talents made two talents more. But he who had received the one talent went and dug in the ground and hid his master's money. Now after a long time, the master of those servants came and settled accounts with them. And he who had received the five talents came forward, bringing five talents more, saying, Master, you delivered to me five talents. Here, I have made five talents more. His master said to him, Well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful over a little. I will set you over much. Enter into the joy of your master. And he also who had the two talents came forward, saying, Master, you delivered to me two talents. Here, I have made two talents more. His master said to him, Well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful over a little. I will set you over much. Enter into the joy of your master. He also who had received the one talent came forward saying, Master, I knew you to be a hard man, reaping where you did not sow and gathering where you scattered no seed. So I was afraid. And I went and hid your talent in the ground. Here, You have what is yours. But his master answered him, You wicked and slothful servant, you knew that I reap where I have not sown and gather where I scattered no seed. Then you ought to have invested my money with the bankers, and at my coming I should have received what was my own with interest. So take the talent from him and give it to him who has the ten talents. For to everyone who has will more be given, and he will have an abundance. But from the one who has not... Even what he has will be taken away and cast the worthless servant into the outer darkness. In that place, there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. This is the gospel of our Lord. We are moving through a sermon series called Why Church? Why Now? As a response to the fact that we're living through the greatest religious shift of any religion and all religions combined in American history that is happening now for 25 years straight, and it's called the Great De-Churching. Some 40 million active Christians have stopped going to church, 16% of the American population, and they don't seem to be coming back. And so we've been asking, why? How might we as a church repent and change and grow? And what are the opportunities hiding in here for us to be, again, a compelling community for the sake of our neighborhood and the city and the world? Last week, we looked at uh, being a people of depth in a distracted world. And this, this sermon is a little bit of a companion and a little bit of short bookends to one another. So um, I'm going to reference that in just a moment, what we did last week, and then we'll dive in together. But let me pray for us for a moment just before we begin.
Gracious Heavenly Father, you have given each person here the gift of life. You've breathed your spirit of life into us. You have promised us your Holy Spirit by grace through faith, and so we pray that that spirit now would vivify us, body, soul, strength, mind, community, individual and corporately. Use this time to speak to us, to renew our minds, and also by renewing our minds to drop this new knowledge down into our hearts, into our wills, into our emotions, into our relationships, and our use of our lives in this world. We pray that you would use this time greatly, in Christ's name, amen. So last week I asked you at the beginning if any of you had been to the Redwood Forest of California. I was able to go out there in May, uh, and I looked up and I sort of did this as I did last week, look up at the Redwoods and you can just see this canopy and how strong and ancient they are and how amazing it is to imagine that these trees, if they were able to witness, as it were, uh, they would have been able to witness not only anything before the founding of America, uh, they would have witnessed the birth of Christ, they also would have witnessed the Exodus, if they could see it from afar, if you will, being three to 4,000 years old. These amazing feats that just grow and stand there in strength and silence. And we used to think, maybe you were taught this or picked it up somewhere along the way, that trees in a forest are in competition with one another, that the really tall ones are the ones that are kind of were well-placed or whatever it means, they just got lucky or they were tapped into their root system to the right spot and they grew, they got the most sunshine and so they, they were sort of hyper, you know, sped up in their growth and that these trees were actually all in competition for who could become the tallest and the strongest most quickly. And we use this as a parable for human society, especially in the form of Western capitalism that we have inherited. The idea is that we are all individuals or small little family units or small little tribes that are competing for very limited resources. And the job is to get yours before anyone else does, to get as tall and as strong as you can, no matter what happens to the smaller trees down there around you. And this has a lot of implications for us that we treat one another and the world in our lives in this way. Forbes magazine, writing to business leaders, asked this question, have you ever thought to yourself, there just isn't enough time, money, or love out there? A lot of us live in an if-only mindset, as in, if only I got that dream job or paycheck or vacation. It's this mindset that keeps us feeling like we're stuck, that we don't have enough, and frankly, that we aren't enough. This scarcity thinking drives how we set up our businesses and interact with our colleagues. We get threatened when other people succeed. And in a fear-based company culture, we react and act hastily, shrinking deadlines, asking for the impossible, giving ourselves little time to think clearly or creatively. A scarcity mindset focuses on what we don't have. Wherever you are, you look up and you see a taller tree that seems to be getting all the sunlight, and suddenly it feels like you don't have enough either. This scarcity mindset, this philosophy that life is a competition for fixed resources, this stuff like, I'm not doing enough. In fact, I'm not sure I'm enough. Forbes says it again, in simple terms, a scarcity mindset leaves you feeling like you never have enough. It manifests as anxiety that you are either not enough or you do not have enough 
to be treating yourself well or sharing with others. We're calling this in our title, Stingy, Stinginess. That we become a stingy people, and not just monetarily. Think about stinginess, this idea of just kind of what image comes into your mind. Isn't it also about control? I've got this, and I have to take really good control of it. I have to manage these limited resources just carefully enough to secure my own safety or those of the people that I love. This is how I'm going to get my version of well-being, of shalom, is by being stingy and really careful and protective of what I have. It is, in other words, to say, mine. This is mine. In the words of our text this morning, stinginess is grasping, clinging to. Yes, money. But also, your own preferred self-identity, your status, your accomplishments, your comfort, your possessions. And that's not even the worst of it. In another article, I, would, I wanted to read more. This is a really interesting article. You can go find it in The Atlantic this week, a Brooklyn writer. Um, I have her name here in a second. Hannah Sue. C.O., it looks like, Hannah C.O. She wrote an article called, America is getting lonelier and more indoorsy. That's not a coincidence. Here's the uh, subtitle. Our relationship to nature and our relationships with one another are deeply intertwined, says Hannah Seal. She says this. Psychologists know that lonely individuals tend to think more negatively of others and see them as less trustworthy, which encourages even more isolation. So if you're a lonely person, they've studied and they know that you often are the kind of person that thinks negatively of others and you see them as not to be trusted and so you're protecting your little resources of your time and your safety and your personal space or whatever and that encourages more isolation. And she says, although our relationship to nature and our relationships with one another may feel like disparate phenomena, they are both parallel and related. A life without nature, it seems, is a lonely life and vice versa. She says, the Western world has been trending toward both biophobia and loneliness for decades. Now, I skipped the part where she explained what biophobia is, but it goes along with our built environment. We get our houses just right, and we want to keep out all the elements, and now we keep out everything, and suddenly we're freaked out about an insect in the house, right? You're afraid of them, and you're also afraid of others. And so she did this nice little uh, exercise in helping you think through those two things and how they're related. But this loneliness, of course, I've done numbers of sermons on this even in the last year and a half. Loneliness is an epidemic in America. Stinginess isn't just, oh, okay, that person likes to hoard stuff. They're like a Scrooge, okay. Stinginess is killing us as a people. It's making us lonely, trapped inside, and afraid. Like lonely little trees with no access to the sun, no nourishment, really exhausted of competing and trying to get almost literally sapped of life. But trees, you may know, we've learned recently are actually deeply interconnected. That whole modern parable about trees competing for limited resources was a lie. Or we didn't have enough science and natural is studying it yet. We hadn't discovered what is actually true. 
that they are all interconnected not only by their root systems under the ground, but by mycelium, a network of fungal threads, or hyphae, which I don't even know, but I read it to you. There you go. A mycelium, they connect everything. The trees communicate to one another. As I said last week, even at the end of their lives, the big trees will send all their sap down into their roots so that it's ready and easy for the mycelium to get to the little trees. Suzanne Simard is a Canadian scientist who's a professor in the Department of Forest and Conservation Sciences at the University of British Columbia. She's author of The Mother Tree. She is the forest ecologist who has proven beyond doubt that trees communicate with each other. That the forest is a single organism wired for wisdom and care. She found that the processes that make for a high-functioning forest actually mirror the maps of the human brain that we're also just now drawing. So these trees, in fact, the mother trees, are parenting and eldering in a mode of mutuality and reciprocity, modeling what we also know to be true of genuinely flourishing human ecosystems. Now, I mentioned this word last week. I've mentioned this in a couple of sermons in the last couple of years, but not too many times. Instead of biophilia, there's a new trend across all the disciplines. Go to like the fast, you know, the, the most cutting edge sort of architecture firms or uh, people designing urban planners, people in art, go around it. Biomimicry is this huge movement that we can go and study God's first revelation, the world, and learn from it. Jesus himself endorsed biomimicry. As I said last week, almost all of his sermons were pointing at natural phenomena and saying, can't you learn the lesson from this fig tree? Can't you learn the lesson from this you know, field over here and how the farmer works it? When he's talking specifically about stinginess, about isolation and loneliness and fear, he says, I tell you, don't be anxious about your life. Don't be anxious about what you're going to eat or what you're going to drink or about your body or what you're going to put on. Isn't life so much more than food? Isn't your body so much more than clothing? Look at the birds of the air. Contemplate them. Look at them. They're, they're not farming. They don't sow, reap. They didn't take any of that stuff and put it in a barn. Yet your heavenly father feeds them. And aren't you of so much more value than those birds? Or which of you, by being anxious, can add a single hour to your span of life? Why are you anxious about clothing? Contemplate the lilies of the field over there. Look how they grow. They're not toiling. They're not spinning wool. Yet I tell you, even Solomon in all his glory was not arrayed like one of these. If God clothes the grass of the field like that, which today is alive and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, how much more is he going to clothe you, you of little faith? Therefore, don't be anxious. Don't be stingy. Saying, what shall we eat? What will we drink? What will we wear? The nations, man, they are striving after these things. Your heavenly father knows that you need these things. But you instead seek, look for, strive after the kingdom of God and his righteousness, that is his work to make all things right. And then all these other things will be added to you on top of it. Don't be anxious about tomorrow. Tomorrow will be anxious for itself. Sufficient for each day is its own trouble. 
contemplating God and his world, we can move, Jesus says, from a scarcity mindset, from stinginess, to an abundance mindset. Just pointing out at the lilies and the birds, look at all the abundance. Look how God takes care of everything. Don't you know he's going to take care of you? Or, you might call it, faith. An abundance mindset is faith. A true belief and dependence on God. Where scarcity says there's not enough to go around, the abundance mindset says there's plenty for everyone. Even the Forbes article said, while scarcity focuses on what we don't have, abundant thinking is an attitude and mindset that focuses on what we do have. It allows us to see possibility rather than limits, and it can shift our perspective. Now, I want you to hear me. This is all helpful, but I don't think it's just a secular imaginative skill that you can hone or a vague optimistic hope or a life hack to do well in the world. The answer is God. That's what Jesus is pointing us to. When we let nature teach us, interpreted by Scripture, we learn one really obvious thing, that despite sin in the world and in the creation, what's been called nature as red in tooth and claw, that though this is also true, it is also true that Jesus points out to us that the world is abundant, and God and his creation are renewable and generative. And so we are called to trust him and to trust the world, and therefore to share, to share with creatures, with one another, with God. And you know, of course, lots of indigenous people and small farmers and pet owners understand how beautiful and lovely it is and how necessary it is to share, not to be stingy and hoard and overwork our land or our friendships or any of these resources. But see, we have this explicit knowledge of how and why in Christ, who has given us a down payment to the church, we are called to be the first fruits of the new humanity. We are called to be an offering that is shared with God and with the world because of Christ, because we've learned that we are not, in fact, individual units, that underground we are connected like the trees. We are connected. I'm going to read the passage in just a second, but I want to mention this. Think about this. Jesus' very first public miracle, a really important wedding. All the people were there. They run out of the most important resource, which we know is wine, right? And Jesus comes and doesn't just give them a little bit extra. He turns the water for washing and for purity into the finest and choicest wine that literally blows everyone's mind. He comes to be generous and to bring abundance. This is the Christ who we follow. And we mostly just see our lack. You know, you don't actually have to raise your hands, but raise, your, raise the hands in your head, if you will, if you don't know what to do with all your endless amounts of free time. Raise your hand if you're like sure that you make way too much money. Raise your hand if you have everything that you want. If you're content and glad with things as they are, raise your hand if you're happy with yourself as you are. See, mostly we see our lack rather than our abundance. This is one way to understand sin, that we see and believe wrongly. And so we act in accordance with these false beliefs. 
And grace is being made to see things differently, to act anew, to begin to see God's abundance and extravagance in Christ, his love, his ability to turn water into wine. I mean, who do you think God actually is? Is he a judge? Is he an absentee parent? Is he a guy that wound up the nature clock and disappeared to let us run it? Is he a boss, a king, a policeman, a coach? See, we see lack. We wonder who he is, this emptiness. But what we are told is that the Lord himself is not only the one who makes water into wine, he is the Christ who came to be with us. Philippians 2 again. And it's plural. Hey, church, I want you to have a new mind. Have your mind renewed. That old scarcity stuff, forget that for a second. I want you to have the same mind. Get on board together. The same vision, the same beliefs. And let this settle into your hearts, into your minds, into your actions. Have this mind among yourselves. It's already yours in Jesus the Messiah. Here it is. He, though he was in the form of God, did not consider this status a thing to be clung to, a cling to be a thing to be grasped, a thing to be hoarded. <laughs> I finally got to the highest place. I'm not that he ever was one. I'm just for the sake of argument. Oh, he's one with God. You know that's the highest tree that you can be. Don't chop me down. I, I got to hold on to this. You know I got to out. No. He had everything. He is one with God. He is God. But he emptied himself. He emptied himself out. He took the form of a servant. He was born in the likeness of you and me and became one just like us. Being found in this human form, even more, he continued to pour himself out. The word is kenosis. He's pouring his life and his love out for the sake of the world. He humbled himself. Not the place of honor. And if you have read the Bible, if you know Jesus, if you read any of the Gospels, you know that he's constantly talking about a reversal and the mighty being taken down and the humble being lifted up. We'll sing this with Mary in a couple weeks in Advent, that this is the major theme of the entire Bible. It's because that's who God is. He's humble. He humbled himself by becoming obedient, doing all the hard stuff, even to the point of death. And not only death, but the most gruesome and humiliating kind, death on a cross. This is how Jesus shares his life with you, with me, with the world. This is what it means to be generous. And generosity, of course, sharing is the antidote to the isolated self. Sharing ourselves with God, that is to trust him for our well-being, but also entrusting ourselves to others, overcoming that loneliness and that fear, going out into the world, sharing yourself. This is the hard part. This is the obedient part that's hard sometimes. You have to learn how to do it, but it's also precisely how we get out of loneliness. It's how we get out of independence or maybe non-dependence and therefore isolation. It's how we get out of the pressure of a perfectly managed, excellent, and expensive little life like a well-groomed suburban lawn. It takes a lot to keep those things up, those perfect lives, doesn't it? And I'll, I'll take two minutes here to say yes 
We are talking about money. But money is just the tip of the iceberg for us today. We're going to do some more uh, biomimicry analogies. You know, go consider the iceberg, right? Money is just the top of all the stuff that's underneath. It's just a fruit on the tree. And so it's important to look at this fruit. Jesus says you can't produce nice fruit from thorns and thistles and brambles. You know, you have to be a good in the root. You have to abide in Christ to produce good fruit that people want to eat. He says money then is a perfect fruit of whether we are sharing people in our hearts or whether we are stingy people. Whether our hearts have atrophied and gotten fearful and small and protective and hoarding and seeing scarcity everywhere and so we just have to hoard our money too. Or we learn to be people that share all of ourselves, including our money. That's why Jesus talks about money almost as much as anything else that he talks about with respect to practical, if you will, items. In other words, you can't say, I don't give any money, but I'm also, I'm a very generous person in so many other ways. God doesn't really let you off the hook with that logic. Money is often the litmus test for whether we are a sharing people. And the baseline for this, if you want to come talk to me again, I'm going to skip this part, is the first fruit offering of the Old Testament. You didn't bring the last when you had some leftovers. You brought the first fruit of the harvest, whether that be of animals or of wheat or whatever it might be, or wine. You brought the first and the best, the firstborn, the fat from the meat, the marrow, the spotless lamb, eventually the firstborn son. It's fruit. It's the first and the best. It's later explained to be the first 10% of all that God brings into your storehouse. You give it back to him. This practice is really hard if you're out of shape. If your heart is atrophied into stinginess and scarcity, individualism, it will take faith. It will take habituated acts of trust and will feel like risk to learn it. Laura and I started this tithe practice the first day of our marriage, actually before separately, but together at 23 years old. And even when our combined tax return in seminary was $9,000, our local church got 900 of that, plus our joyful participation, plus our volunteering, plus our ministry. Now it's not even hard. It's just an automatic withdrawal from the bank account. But again, as I said last week, pointing even at tithing is not depth. It's important, but it's just the surface. What God loves is a cheerful giver. What God loves is a generous heart. What God loves is someone who sees the birds, who sees the flowers, who sees their friends, who sees all the work that needs to be done in this building, who sees all the neighbors who are lonely and isolated and says, what can I share with them? Because God has shared everything with me. See, this fruit of money must be coming from love and from faith and from hope and from trust, not from slavish duty or self-righteousness or that kind of sacrifice or begrudgingly. Being generous is about sharing your money, but it's also about sharing your entire self, your fullness as a human being. As one theologian wrote, our attitudes towards earning, giving, losing, and receiving money are about as good a measure for our giving and receiving of love as anything I know. The opposite is also true. If you're stingy with your love, you'll be stingy with money. Generous with your love, you'll be generous with money. 
circumspect with love, circumspect with money. In a general sense, we're either people that are like a river flowing out to give life to others, or people that put up a dam to make sure we have enough. The Apostle Paul put it this way, if there is any, if any of you have any encouragement in Christ, if you have any comfort from his love for you, if you participate even a little bit in the Holy Spirit, if you have any affection, any sympathy, then make my joy complete by having the same mind, having the same love, sharing, okay? Sharing the same mind, sharing the same love, being in full accord, having one mind. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceitedness, but in humility, consider other people more significant than yourself. Let each of you not look only to your own interests, but also to the interests of others. What is it about your life that you can share with one another, with the world? Jesus said, give to Caesar the things that are Caesar and to God the things that are God's. And so as you steward yourself, not just your money, but your own life, if God owns everything and you're a steward, what can you share? I wrote this once, my wife and kids and sermons and songs and jokes and plants and earnings and accomplishments and everything else will eventually fade away and I will have to leave this world for the next one just as I entered it, alone and vulnerable with God, dependent on him for whatever's next. So what is the point of grasping onto anything? The tightest grip in the world is meaningless. Jesus didn't grasp or hold tightly to anything. He gave himself away in kenosis, in emptying love. Kenosis and the transformation it brings for him and for us happens as we pour ourselves out in love like a waterfall. And think about a waterfall. It pours itself out in love, this powerful force. And yet it never pauses its emptying. And it's never spent. It's always renewed by forces outside of itself. This is how the kingdom works. This is what Jesus is telling you. That if we will be rooted in Christ, the one who gave himself up for us, who showed us what it meant to be a servant, to share everything that he is and has with us, because his deepest desire is to spend eternity sharing all of this with you and sharing himself with you and sharing you with himself and with others, that we could never get sapped if we are rooted in this person. We will be continually renewed by forces outside of ourselves. And in fact, we are told by Christ and by Paul in this letter that we are not alone. What a foolishness to think so. We have an abundance. In fact, we are an abundance in Christ when we are connected to him like branches into the vine. Christ, as I said last week, like those trees that put the resin in their roots, died for you so that you might have his life. And now he lives in you. He's being formed in you and he's building you up into a mighty and strong forest, interconnected and rooted in Christ, down to your deepest depths, but also to the highest heights. That's how Philippians 2 continues. It's because of the way that Jesus is, that God so loves him, that he exalted him and gave him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus, every knee in heaven and on earth and under the earth should bow down, and you get to sit and reign with this Christ. You are going from the depths to the heights, friends. Where do you go? There is not the love of God in Christ for you. If this is true, then there is more than enough of him to go around. Back in May, not only did I get to go to the Redwood Forest, 
I had the profound experience of finding myself in Barcelona, where I've never been. And I was told to go to a church, didn't know much about it. This is really cool church. I love going to churches. They're fun to visit for me. But they're like, this one's pretty special. It's by God's architect, Gaudi. It's called La Sagrada Familia. Has anyone in the room been to La Sagrada Familia? A few of you? Stop what you're doing and buy a ticket, okay? I'm going to start taking pilgrimages there. I'm only half joking. Uh, we would like to go as often as possible. This cathedral, I'm not going to spend time, I'm not going to be able to, to give justice to it. I've been in a lot of churches. I've been blessed to be in a lot of churches in a lot of places around the world. I've been in some great cathedrals. I was totally stunned by what this thing was. I had no way to be prepared to walk in and to realize that he had broken every architectural, and that maybe not all of them, but a lot of the most important architectural ideas in the history of building, of making cathedrals and all this stuff. And he had done it because Gaudi liked to go walk in nature, and he wanted to build what he called uh, God's, not only God's cathedral, but a cathedral for the world. So a Christian cathedral, but that also one that had no borders that would awe everyone from around the world to come into it and to see what kind of God Jesus was and is. And so he built it so that it is like you're inside an ivory forest. Uh, never before. I mean, I could go into it. I learned a little bit. But instead of the flying buttresses, instead of, you know, the sort of normal support beams and all the things that people had done, he made them like trees. And so the pillars go up like these trees. And at the top, you'll see what looks like might be coral or f flowers over here. And the light is pouring in. And you're in this man-made, built environment that it is also like being in the most glorious redwood forest you've ever been in. They've been building it for 140 years, I believe. It is unbelievable what people working together across generations, working corporately and prayerfully, have made this man-made communal monument that is based on the wisdom of God's first Bible nature and then filled with the story of his second Bible all around it. I also wrote this upon my experience there. I couldn't believe that through it all, speaking of Spain now, the triumph, the fascism and revolution, the war, the pacifying retreat from global conquest, the church grew. Like a forest of surreal trees, it grew, or rather it was built, built by men and women like you and me, who went home from the work of building this church, their laundry hanging, and their tired youth, Men who would clash over property and become lawyers and waste money fighting. And yet through it all, it was built. It is being built. It grows. It grows perhaps in the hearts and minds of a people and in them on behalf of all people. Like a dream, a hope, an aspiration, a wild and untamable plant reaching to the sky. And it grows still today. In fact, it is incomplete. Can we contemplate the lilies? and the trees. Can we share this space as we renew it and build it? Can we share our lives as we root in Christ more deeply to one another and grow up together and reach out to our neighbors and invite them into our community? Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now, not only in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. Work it out. Because it's God, actually, who works in you. That totally renewable source of love and life and energy.
It is God who works in you to will and to work for his good pleasure. Do you realize that no one planted the redwoods? They just are. They came to be. God did that. He still does that. Can we share in his sowing and his reaping, his rooting and his building us up in love? Friends, dig deep in this new era we have before us. Let God plant us. Let him build us up into a forest cathedral. And let's share all that he is with one another and with the world. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit.